news. Uh, but there could be another baby dedication coming. I don't know if Roy and Emily are ready to talk about that with the congregation, but keep, let's keep praying. <laughs> the Nicholases could enjoy a third, perhaps. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Let's redeem the time and pray together. God, thank you so much for this morning. A wonderful time to gather together with like-minded believers and corporate worship of yourself, of your word. We're so thankful that you have given us your Holy Spirit that lives and resides in each of the believers here today. And God, we pray that our presence is a, a sweet aroma as we focus on you and marvel in you, even as we approach your word this morning in Genesis chapter 36, for all intents and purposes, a genealogy. God, would you use that to encourage and grow our faith? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Genesis chapter 36 this morning. Um, I uh, made a joke with Roy and I asked him, would he read it? And then I forgot to tell him I was joking, and he was still looking at it when I came into Sunday school this morning, so my apologies. Um, sometimes these lists of genealogies and names are, are really difficult, so I was, I was just kind of messing with Roy, so I, I, I do apologize. He was down, though. He was, he was ready to do it. You know, maybe as you turn to Genesis chapter 36, you're looking at this page and you're thinking, what, what are we going to do here? How are we going to go through this list? How are we going to treat this scripture? And I want to tell you that I think that this is an amazing portion of scripture. I, I, I so hope that on my, upon my death, um, you know, oftentimes now, I don't know how many funerals you go to, but usually there's some kind of a table where there'll be a picture of the deceased, you know, smiling and giving some thumbs up. I call it the realtor photo. If you've ever met a realtor who's been one for a while, generally you meet them and you're like, you look nothing like your photo. That's like from 30 years ago. I want a compilation video of me saying, that's my favorite scripture. That's my favorite scripture. That is my favorite scripture. And they're all just different. I just love the word so much. But this particular chapter this morning, I, I feel like is, is kind of a, a lights on moment where we can realize these lives of assurance that we get to live because of who God is. And that's what I think should jump off the page from Genesis chapter 36 is who God is. We get to see and frankly be wowed, I think, by God's sovereignty and seeing all that he's done to bring the lineage of Christ through the way that he's prophesied, through the way that he has said, through allowing impossible odds so that we could see his power and we could understand his glory even just a little more and then I pray that we would become empowered to live lives of assurance because of that truth if you open your bible to the book of Romans in chapter 8 perhaps perhaps you've been here before I think there's an off-quoted verse in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 but we'll continue forward to verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 and I think this does a wonderful job of encapsulating how we should marvel by something like Genesis chapter 36. The conclusion, in fact, I think that something like Genesis chapter 36 brings us to is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, which reads like this. What then shall we say to these things? 
if God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know if truer words have ever been spoken. Perhaps as true words have been spoken, perhaps the rest of Scripture is certainly true. But if God is for us, who can be against us? It's, it's so incredibly true. If that, if that really sinks in and we really understand, we really own that passage, knowing that if God is for us, nothing can be against us. Certainly it can be against us, but not victoriously. And so the Christian life, I think as, as Pastor John mentioned this morning, gosh, I would love it if the Christian life was just we become saved and then we stand under the spout where the glory comes out. Right? We just enjoy this incredibly blessed life of no trial, of no tribulation, of no difficulty ever. But that's not what the scriptures say. And so it's passages like these that put iron in our gut for living in a life that will tempt and try us, that will pressure us, that will, will press in on all sides, desiring to crush us, but finding no success. What are we to do and what are we to say when your husband or your wife or your child or your parent receives a cancer diagnosis. How do we remain faithful knowing that God is good through the moments when life is rough? Knowing that we can trust God, that we can trust his plan and we can trust his purposes. If our faith is so fragile that we think God must bless us in every moment with the things that we want. We become like a, a spoiled toddler. We, we're immature. If we would only worship a God who gives us the fleeting desires of our hearts, we would be immature Christians. That's why a healthy understanding of who God is and whose we are is important for when the going gets tough. If our faith was so fragile that if the least bit of trial was to enter our life, Satan could topple us. That's why the book of Job is so wonderful, especially if you read it without reading the conversation between Satan and God. Because that's what the whole book of Job is about. The whole book of Job is about Job's Ability to sustain the trial because of God, not because of Job. Satan says he only worships you, he only loves you, he only follows you because you give him stuff and things. And I feel like we're so vulnerable to that as Westerners, as Americans, we're so comfortable. There is so little discomfort that ever falls on us, even when we complain, our first modality, our, our, our initial thing that we like to do is just complain our favorite thing to do is to be busy we're so proud of being busy working ourselves beyond exhaustion we're we're sad really generally it might be the first conversation you have with someone how are you oh busy i worked 78 hours last week because i am frankly an idiot 
I give everything about myself to my job. I keep nothing for myself. I keep nothing for the Lord. I don't honor him. I don't honor my family. I don't protect my rest. I don't protect myself. I give everything to my job, and that's my entire identity. Is seemingly our first mode as American Christians. Thank God that Romans 8, 26 through 28 encourages us that the Spirit helps when we're weak. You know, when I'm weak at all times and always, especially in comparison with God, I'm nothing. I'm a mite. I'm but dust. The Spirit helps when we're weak and works all things together for the good of the saints according to the will of God. What wonderful truth. According to God's purpose. Not my purpose. My purpose would be self-serving always. My purpose would work to my benefit. My purpose would frankly probably be disgusting. But God's is great. And that's why as mature Christians we could step back from any and all circumstances. And say I trust you in this God. I might not love it in this moment, but I trust you in it. This is how, as a Christian, we and our faith survive when a parent, a husband, a wife, a child becomes ill and perhaps dies because we trust God, we trust him. And I feel like what we'll find in Genesis 36 feeds that, feeds it directly. And, and so much of the reason is because what we'll see about Esau, this, this older brother Esau, is in the light of the plan that God will reveal throughout the rest of Scripture. When we find out who Esau is, when we find out who his descendants are, when we find out all that God did to to demonstrate his sovereignty through this story it is frankly mind-bending i was talking to pastor john and, and roy early this morning eight this morning and and we were talking about the, the the book of mormon and the mormon religion and if you go on youtube there's a wonderful documentary by um, um, a college educated archaeologist who was a mormon and began to study the mormon text against the archaeological record and, and, it, and it fell apart it talks about wars and people groups who never existed, for whom there's no archaeological evidence. Talk about animals that don't exist on continents where they're spoken of in the text. And there's this massive chart downstairs next to the Sunday school room. I would encourage you to go there. If Pastor John will ever make up his mind, we'll hang it somewhere on a wall. It shows this terrific cylindrical circular picture of timeline and it overlaps all of these different texts and what was going on. And you can see people from history who lived at the same times that books of scripture were being written. It's the most amazing thing because the Christian scripture stands up perfectly to history because it's true. Because it's true. I remember the first time I ever truly heard or by the grace of God, my heart was pierced and open to truth. And I, for the first time ever heard the Bible taught itself rather than stories told atop the Bible. 
I remember thinking, my goodness, this is real. This is just real. This is truth. These aren't, these aren't interesting stories. This is historical record. This is what has happened. And layered on top of it, it's for God's purposes to tell his story, to demonstrate his gospel, to show his son so that we would repent, turn, believe, and be reborn, remade, renewed, and live forever with him. What great truth. And the word stands wonderfully in that regard. In Genesis chapter 36, we'll do that very thing. So if you look at Romans, excuse me, Romans, Genesis chapter 36, you'll have a hard time finding Romans chapter 36. But Genesis chapter 36, you'll find quite easily in the front portion of your Bible. Right after chapter 35 and right before chapter 37, it's tucked away, not so secretly. And so in the 36th chapter, we're going to get the genealogy of Esau, which in itself being given this genealogy is interesting because these people will fade off to nothing eventually. However, their place in scripture is incredible when you mine through some of the peoples, when you mine through the stories. We'll find ourselves in Luke and Matthew this morning from this lineage. And so by the grace of God, we get to see the generations of Esau. We see that he took wives and he lived in the land. He had children. He had sons. And in the fourth verse, in the fifth verse, the sons that were born to him were in the land of Canaan. So before we continue in chapter 36, we're going to spend some time. So limber your fingers for, as Pastor John Nicholas mentioned this morning, we will be on a bit of a sword drill journey. Uh, sword drill, if, if you're old or if you've been in a kind of a traditional church group, they used to have kids do sword drills. I remember once watching an adult man, Sunday school teacher, argue with a mom that her kid couldn't have a, a Bible with tabs because it was unhelpful during sword drills. But they would have children, they would tell them what book and passage, and, and the first one to find it would hold up their hand like this, so we're not doing that. Um, it Hurts Adam Nicholas, he can't get there very quickly. No sword drills this morning. If you can't find it, write it down in a note and go read it later. It's, it's wonderful to see how the scripture talks about the scripture itself. Genesis chapter 37. Boy, I'm the worst today. Back in Genesis chapter 27. We find a continuation of a story that started in Genesis chapter 26, where Isaac cuts an oath of peace with Abimelech after there was this quarrel over the wells. And what the reason they cut this oath of peace is not because they had a change of heart or a change of mind and they just finally desired they just wanted peace. They didn't want to quarrel over the wells anymore. They realized that God was with him. They didn't want to quarrel. They didn't want to fight against the will of God. Something we would do well to take that position ourselves. Next in Genesis chapter 27, we find Isaac at the end of his life calling on Esau, his older son first, and then Jacob. And, and they're going to come and they're going to receive their, their, their blessing from their father. At the end of his life, the scriptures will tell us is, is Vision was blurry if you're more than 30, if you're 40 and above, you, you know that, you know. I have a, a super hard time. We've got this massive, must be more powerful than the world's brightest halogen up here. I have now transitioned to a giant print scripture. 
which uh, each letter is about the size of a matchbox car, and I still have a hard time seeing it, but I'm not quite to the dimness of not being able to recognize my children when they're near me. But, but this is the situation we are here. He asked Esau to go into the field and bring back some game for his father, and they were going to receive their blessings. And then what ends up happening is, is Jacob and his mother end up tricking their father into giving Jacob, the, the, not the oldest, the second oldest son, the blessing. And we'll get the recap in Genesis chapter 27, verses 31 through 40, if, if you're not familiar with the story. And if you're not, that is completely okay, because you will be now. Genesis chapter 30, 27 and verse 31. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me even also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he has taken away your blessing. Verse 36, Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. I have given to him. Uh-oh, told you I can't see anymore, I apologize. Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you and all his brothers, and I have given him for servants and grain and wine. I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. It is important that we read this passage in in. Don't step away from it. I think sometimes we refer to things in the Bible as stories, and I do this too. These are stories of people that existed and things that occurred. When it talks about Esau trembling and weeping and being violent in his voice, the guttural anger that is in him will carry forward into so many circumstances that will affect the relationship between Israel and the people that will come after Esau. Romans chapter 9 and verse 13, you don't have to go there, but maybe make a note, write it down. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I love that God has chosen one over the other, and when you look at who they are as people, 
He did not choose one over the other, one or the other, because of the merit of their personality. Understand what Esau said. It's the second time by trickery his brother has stolen something from, something from him. If you know the story and, and if you think back or if you don't, he stole his brother's birthright effectively by, by tricking him through food when he was hungry. Like for me, that's when I'm most vulnerable. When the blood sugar's low, when I'm really hungry is when I make all of my worst decisions. Uh, which for someone like me is frequent. And so God is going to build his nation through his choice, through a genealogy of people. And it's not that he picked them because of how great they were. In fact, it's sometimes in spite of who they are, it's because of his will is why he did it. And so when we think back now to... To, to believers now, that's why there's, there's no pride in our salvation. There's no pride in who we are. There's nothing that we can boast in. There's nothing that we should boast in. There's nothing we can boast in. In fact, it took sacrificial slaughter of God's own son for us to be redeemed and redeemable. That's nothing to brag or boast in. That's something for us to marvel in. And be blown away by. And that's what we should be when we think on our salvation. Is blown away and, and, and thankful. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. God, in spite of this, allows Esau to be temporally blessed. With things, possessions, and family. It's not as though you know, God just has Esau under his thumb. And he's just constantly torturing him and, and digging into him and trying to make things terrible he's off doing his own thing he has peoples he has land he has families you'll see later that they raise up kings they're successful in the land it's just that because of god's glory because of his will he has elected to bless through the younger son which is even in itself should be mind-blowing now imagine the hatred that Esau has, knowing that his brother is going to receive these blessings, which should have rightfully been his, now he's going to carry that down through generations, which will, as God revealed to Rebecca when she was pregnant, cause generational strife between these people, two nations, two kingdoms that will never get along. We don't see a lot of mentions about Esau. Malachi 1, 3 through 5 is, is one of those few mentions um, so it is interesting that Moses sees fit and God sees fit to include in scripture a recording of Esau's line which is mostly lost to time but Malachi 1 3 through 5 gives us a little glimpse which reads like this but Mal but Esau I have hated I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert if Edom says we are shattered but we will rebuild the ruins the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild it, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Picking up in verse 6 of Genesis 36. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, 
all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. Now that, to a mind that's read the Bible for a bit, to, to someone who's been in the book of Genesis for the last 35 chapters, should sound like familiar verbiage. This isn't the first time we've seen two people whom God has allowed to become so materially blessed that they can't even coexist. They have to go to different places because the land itself can't support these people. What you're seeing is God's sovereign hand causing that they go in different directions. And they're doing it of their own will. It's not as though Esau's like, gee whiz, I want my brother's life to be really comfortable. So I'm going to go somewhere else. He can have all this. I'll have all that. And we'll live together at peace because the rest of history denies that. There's no desire to give something over to his brother. This is the sovereign hand of God acting on the willing hearts of his creatures. Why? To see through his will. And as he wills, they shall do. Verse 8 reads that Esau settled in the hill country of Edom, of Seir. We'll see in, in Genesis chapter 36, much later, how that acquisition of land took place. Um, let's see, how long is that? Yeah, pretty far in. Um, we'll see how that acquisition of land took place through, through wars and warring. They were a very strong people, which probably makes a lot of sense coming that they come from Esau. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 12, we read that the Horites lived in Seir formerly, but the, the, the people of Esau disposed of them and destroyed them from before from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave them. So Esau takes the land giving his brother all of the land that had been promised to him frankly in Genesis chapter 28 verses 3 and 4. This is when, when Jacob was initially sent to Laban and Pedim Aram. Uh, Isaac says to Jacob, God Almighty blesses you bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. He May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. All of this is coming together that God saw fit to do according to his own timeline. And that is also important because we're time-bound creatures. We live where we are. We experience them in ways that we do. And in a day and age like ours, and probably everyone before us, and probably everyone after us, but I just know ours, it's so important to keep that in mind. Because our tendency, and Pastor John probably talk about this later, our tendency sometimes is to watch the news. We call it exegete the news. So the idea of exegesis means taking out of, taking truth out of something. So when we look at the scriptures, we exegete the truth of God from the word of God. People who try to exegete the news look at the news, they pick up the newspaper, and they try to make it be the book of Revelation. Well, I know that we're in the end times because Daniel says this, and that says that, and so Jesus is coming back on October 14th, 2024, because Israel was founded in 1948, and Daniel talks about the number of weeks. That shouldn't be our approach to life. That shouldn't be our approach to the news. Just like our time-boundness 
should not cause us to look at the circumstances of our life and say, how can Romans 8.28 be true? This isn't working together for my good. Well, first of all, you don't know the end. And second of all, it works together for those who are called according to his purposes. Not your purposes, necessarily. His purposes may look entirely different than your purposes. In fact, they probably do. And so what we're seeing here in Esau is he's going after things of his own desire, just like God uses sinful people who do sinful things, but it still accomplishes his will. The people freely wanted to set up Jesus in this kangaroo trial, freely wanted to have him tortured through this crucifixion process, freely wanted to spit at him, freely wanted Barabbas over him. God used all that for his glory according to his purposes. So we see the hand of God acting here in this acquisition of land and this separating of land, even in that they were so material blessed they couldn't cohabitate anymore, is the sovereignty of God causing that they would go in their different directions, that Esau would have a land and that his brother would have a land, which was the land that would be promised to the patriarchs. God works all things together according to his purposes. There's no better commentary on scripture than scripture. So we can look forward to the book of Joshua and the 24th chapter. And before we read it, what we'll see is this area of Sechem mentioned, which again, with your book of Genesis hat firmly fixed on your head, you've heard of this already as we've studied through the book of Genesis. It's where the Lord came to Abraham and promised the land to his offspring. It's where in Joshua 24, we'll see that Joseph's remains will ultimately be buried. In fact, uh, as Pastor John mentioned this morning in the first Peter study, he mentioned Stephen's sermon in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. In that speech, in that sermon that Peter delivers, he's He's, he's speaking back to a people who are unable to stand the, spirit, the Spirit's presence in him and the argument for truth and the, the, the presentation of the gospel. And because opposition to God never stands in the light, it always functions in the shadows. They work to accuse Stephen of something so that he can be put on trial. They accuse him of blasphemy so that he can be tried. And during that trial, Stephen tracks from Abraham through the land where they are, noting that Israel would be sojourners, needing to worship God, demonstrating that in spite of everything, in spite of who they are, in spite of what they'd done, God was with them, even in their disobedience, even in the midst of their disobedience. And in talking about the return and the burial, he mentions this biblical land of Sechem, which is the only place in the New Testament where it's mentioned. Joshua 24, verses 1 through 4. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Sechem and summoned the elders and the heads of the judges and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and served gods. 
Then took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. In that fourth verse, it appears in the book of Genesis that Esau went willingly, but we see in the book of Joshua, it was he who was behind the division of land. It was always God. God was causing it to be. And that's such an interesting and important note about the sovereignty of God, is that he works on the hearts of people to do his very will, even unbelievers. Even unbelievers. They will do what the sovereign has designed. And so we, in our time-boundness, sometimes we look around and we see the, the news and the goings-on of the world. We see the, generally the, the success of unbelieving people, and we can become frustrated by that. We can say, God, why would you allow these people with these horrible ideas that work against you to find success, to do all these things? It's time-bound. It's all time-bound. Our prayer should be that they would find God and become believers and that we would all live together in, in part of his kingdom. But even if they die appearing to still be successful in the world, that is such a crying shame because this is a place where moth and rust destroy. There's no life in this place. There's no life in its successes. All of the excitements of work are silliness. Can you imagine if the whole and sum of who you are is your job? What a disappointment. I mean, my goodness, I'm basically a professional emailer at this point. I think that's about all I do is send people emails about things and stuff and talk about it. It's a preposterous existence. If that was all I had at the end of my life, I said John responded to his emails quite quickly. What a guy. That would be awful. Some of us live as though that is the most important thing. And so when you look at my home screen and you find 954,000 unread emails on Gmail, you understand why. I am the way I am. I'm sorry, it's 94,000. Let's, let's not get crazy. What a great encouragement to understand the life of assurance, trusting God's complete and total sovereignty. Do you know why you pray? If you do, I hope you do. Why you pray for people's salvation? Because God can affect their will. Because we believe it. We believe that God can change them. It's not as though people who don't believe are out there running, gosh, I wish someone would just confront my sin. No. In order to even see that, the Spirit of God must affect them, must enable them to see that they are in sin, that they are separated from him. And so we pray for people because we believe that God can interrupt their lives with the truth of the gospel because we believe he's sovereign. I've, I've told this story until I'm blue in the face and I'll continue telling it until maybe the day I die. I don't know. It's kind of dramatic. Um, I don't actually know when that day is going to be. Uh, but a missionary who left from our midst, I'll say, once said... I don't want to name him. That would be embarrassing. Once said, that makes God more robustly sovereign. And I said, Drew, <laughs> that's ridiculous. It doesn't mean anything. It sounds really cool. 
more robustly sovereign sounds like the smartest thing I've ever heard. But sovereignty is binary. It either is or it isn't. You can't be more sovereign. He's only sovereign. He's complete and total sovereignty. He doesn't compare something. He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know what, there's this standard of good out there and I really want to hit it, so let me work really hard to make sure every decision I make is good. God defines good. He is what good is. If you want to know what good is, he's the measuring stick by which we reach, so his will is good and we can trust it completely, which is the only way we survive this life. Again, when circumstances befall your life that are evil, frankly evil, how can you survive but to trust that God is using it somehow for good? You cannot. And that must be true because his word says it. And that should be the most encouraging thing. And I don't mean encouraging like positive encouraging Caleb who wants to collect stories about, you know, funny stories about your kitty. I mean actually encouraging in the depths of your soul. I mean the kinds of encouragement where, where you're weeping and you're crushed because everything is awful. You're still encouraged that God is good in the midst of it. Deep, true encouragement comes from knowing that God is sovereign and it is on every page of scripture. That's how we live lives of assurance. And that's what jumps out to me from Genesis chapter 36. It's knowing how well woven and how true this story is. That the God who told a mom about the two children who are in her womb, these are warring nations. One would come out pulling on the heel of the other. One, one would, would, would steal the blessing, the birthright from the other. One would steal the blessing from the other. They would go on life quarreling. They would exist as Israel and the Edomites, warring, seeming forever, until God would exact final justice. In fact, if you were to flip back to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23, you see the Lord say to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And we see that being reminded of the older serving the younger in the story of the blessing being given to the younger and Esau's bitterness in receiving this news. It was always going to be. They were just surprised as it actually played out the way it was always going to be. Later, the Edomites who come from Esau would actually be, be conquered, which was pretty wild because they'd survived lots of different warring situations. They took their land through warring. Greek will, will become the, the language of the people. Religion will be foisted upon them. Imagine being a people who understand that the blessing has been taken from you, the birthright and your right as, as the people who should have the blessing that should be, have been stolen from you. Would you just receive it? Would you just accept it? No, probably not. Right? If you were the people who live knowing that this guy, he only has a blessing because he snuck in with animal skin on his arm and told his dad he was our people, you probably would not accept that. 
which makes it fascinating to look at the Edomites and who they become. In fact, it would be said that Herod the Great was Edomite. And perhaps you remember him if you've ever been at a Christmas service and church before. You, 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 you sit down in Christmas service and you go ahead and you open to the book of Matthew because you know you're going there. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It tells the story very well. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 read like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, who we said is Edomite, who's in the line of, uh, who's in the line of Esau, Behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. Now, hit pause for a minute in in verse 2 there. You're seeing the sovereign hand of God causing things to be. These wise men come in and say, Where is the one who's king of the Jews? That is a just a... Stab in the side of Herod, who's Edomite, who says, no, our people are rightfully, I am literally the king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And you know what he would go on to do is decree that every male child born in the land would be killed. Does it make more sense now, that story? Knowing that this is the, the warring nations that God told Rebecca would, would war with each other. The younger would serve the older. The, the, the older is always trying to get back in and just doesn't realize they're fighting against the sovereign hand of God. Yet God would sovereignly protect the Christ. And provide a way for him. We see Matthew chapter 2 verse 22. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Jesus, or excuse me, Joseph took Jesus to the one district where the king didn't have power. And that struggle from the kingdoms, it would, it would continue. We get interesting interaction in in the book of Luke in the 13th chapter um, that kind of reveals this ongoing strife as as you know we remind people at Christmas every year Jesus didn't say a baby in the manger he grew up he became a man strong in stature he grew in knowledge Luke chapter 13 at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him get away from here Herod wants to kill you recurring theme in Jesus life Verse 32, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform curses today and tomorrow. And then the third day I finish my course. Jesus was not concerned. Jesus wasn't terrified. Jesus didn't think, oh my gosh, this is all going to be thrown off plan. He knows that God, his father is in sovereign charge of everything. And refers to Herod as that fox. What a way to speak to the king. And so by the grace of God, he allows us to get this glimpse into the time-bound descendants of Esau and the Edomites. I, much to Roy's displeasure, will not read through all of these peoples and all of these lands. I'll leave that to Pastor John Nicholas. I think he wanted to do that next week to read 36 for everyone's enjoyment. But it's the grace of God to let us see 
a glimpse of Esau and his lineage, this, this one who was hated, this one who would become the Edomites, this one who would lead to Herod, who would try to kill the Christ child, who had separated from lands uh, because of the sovereign hand of God that we saw in the book of, we see it in Judges, in Joshua. We also see when you flip down through to Genesis chapter 36 and verse 31, that they were ruled by kings. And before any kings reigned over the Israelites, they were ruled by kings. We know that that's not God's best. God's best is not being ruled by kings. God's best is living under his authority. Living under the authority of the word is best. But he's still at times allows for the benefit of people, government, and government systems, which is why we recognize this, which is why we pray for, for whether we're under kings or in kingdoms or under presidents and Congress and Senate and House. We pray for these people that they would make God-fearing decisions at least some of the time. I mean, we pray that it would be all the time, but, but we pray that, come on, let's, let's get life right. <laughs> you know, let's... let's Let's honor what God does and makes special. And so many other important decisions. I mean, we're in strange times. Again, I, I don't want to get to the point of exegeting the news. I don't personally do that. But we're in strange times. Um, I, I've said before, if I, had a, if I had a dictionary, and I don't even know if this is true, but, I, you know, I like my odds. If I had a dictionary from 10 years ago, and I put it here, and I had a dictionary printed yesterday, I bet you I could open that up to some pretty common themes and read glaringly opposed definitions for words. Betcha. Around things that seem like they should be straightforward. Gender would be completely confused. Gen gender would be out of control confused. I don't even know what the dictionary would say. They probably just give up. You know, whoever's writing the dictionary is just like, whatever, you guys do what you want. Okay? Because I can't print a dictionary fast enough to keep up with what you're doing. Things are so confused, it's wild. In the world around us, um, there's constant wars and, and rumors of wars. There's constant murderous, killing, awful, horrible things. And you know what's wild? It's not new. This has always been going on. It feels like it's new now because sometimes we have this trough of what seems like peace. Um, and so we kind of forget. But you go back through, you don't have to go back in much history before you find conflict. And if you're surprised that there's conflict around Gaza, um, hi, that's been going on for like a really long time. Okay, this is not new. This is more of the same. Certainly what's happening now is very significant. Um, but if you think that's new, my goodness, please pick up a book and get off Facebook and TikTok. Um, if you think you should head down to your local college campus and you should uh, extol the heroics of Hamas, uh, please, let's have a conversation. I want to explain to you how incredibly wrong. I'm embarrassed to see people in support of something like Hamas. I think that is frankly embarrassing. Shameful that our college campuses have what should be thinking people in support of something so awful is shameful and completely embarrassing. And it seems to be all over college campuses, so it needs to be spoken about publicly, frequently, and strongly. And this, is, this kind of thing is why Genesis chapter 36 to me is, is so precious, is so encouraging. 
because we see what feels like out of control craziness and we see that actually God is in complete and total control of it and sometimes using it to accomplish his will and his good for his purposes. And that should give us a deep breath of relief. Not that we erase and we don't care about the woes of the world. We absolutely care. We absolutely should care. But we trust with a lasting kind of a peace that God is in control of it all. Because that's what we see is the sovereign power of God on display. Um, If you lived during the time of the Edomites and and you were a Jew of any other tribe, you would probably look and say, why are they, God, why do you allow them to be so successful? They're of Esau who you hated, but they're getting along in the land just fine. And you would probably be completely frustrated. But ultimately we come to find that they were completely overcome. That Christ came and was safe in spite, I mean, you think, you think about infocide? Um, uh, Pastor John Piper wrote a wonderful poem, which is, of course, extra biblical. Um, it does not come from scripture. However, it was a very interesting perspective written from the perspective of the innkeeper, where he writes that the, the perspective of the innkeeper who allowed the Christ child to be born there and then soldiers come after. I mean, imagine, you've got to place yourself in these stories and really think and appreciate them. I feel like sometimes we become too complacent with the stories of the Bible. I'm talking about soldiers coming into homes, taking babies and killing them because of the decree of a king. We read over these passages sometimes a little too smoothly. How do you live through that and know that God is good? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. I, I love verse 15 of that passage. Hebrews 4.15, zone in on that. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. That's what our sin is. It's it's weakness. Not weakness that we should be stronger and we should resist sin. Certainly we should. But our weakness that our faculties are given over to a broken world that groans and is dying and needs Christ and needs the Holy Spirit of God to live in us and even remind us of sin and righteousness. That's why that's why sometimes you go about your day and you do something or you say something and you you interact with someone and you're like, oh, why did I do that? It's because you're weak, you're but dust, and it's simply an opportunity to go to that person and repent and say, gosh, I love you, you're you're creation, you're God's, he loves you, I love you, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I needed a sandwich. (laughs) Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be? The God who, who, who sovereign plan flowed through 
all of the pages of the book of Genesis that we're seeing, I mean, we're, we're seeing God act on people's hearts who otherwise hated him, who would never have wanted to do his will, being used to do his will freely, excitedly, ready to go take this land over here, ready to mock Christ. And by their very actions being used as measured wrath being poured out against sin. The satisfaction of God's wrath through the, the, the freely flowing actions of sinful people. It's the most incredible thing that's ever happened in all history. And that will ever happen for all history. That the willing acts of sinful people were used to satisfy the very wrath of God is sovereignty. It's on every page metaphorically, of this book. All of the 66 books of Scripture give this crimson thread that God was always seeing through to satisfy his wrath against sin through a proxy, through Christ, that we would become righteous in Christ. That's why it's described as alien. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't even belong on it. It doesn't even fit. It's like in the, in the 70s and 80s, those terrible plastic costumes with eyes that they cut your face and you couldn't see out of them. Fits like that. That's how alien righteousness fits on us. It's horrible. But that's, God sees us as his son when we're his, when we've repented, when we've turned from trusting ourselves and turned to trusting Christ as our Savior and Lord. I'll leave us with a psalm. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 28, and then we'll sing together in worship. Of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. What great truth, and this is why we live lives of assurance. Let's pray. God, thank you. To, thank you for your son. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you elect and call us, that you pierce our hearts, God, that you make them new, that you redeem us, and that you give us opportunity to share of your great truth with a lost and dying world around us. God, we thank you for the truth that everything around us will, will perish, that in fact you'll burn it, but that you are forever. Thank you that we can know that your will is perfect and good, and that if you allow it, we can trust it. God, thank you for that iron truth. Thank you for your sovereignty and allowing us to see it. God, if there is anyone this morning who doesn't know you savingly through your son, Jesus, without the, your, your own spirit dwelling in them, would you allow them to see the truth of your gospel, which is simply that they're lost and dying without you and that a world vies to keep their attention full of lies. And that you are grace and goodness and mercy and truth. Would you find them and save them? God, we thank you for those of us who have believed for maybe a long time. And, and maybe 
some of our fervor and excitement for you has waned. Maybe circumstances of our lives have pressed on us. Perhaps opportunities to follow you in one regard but deny you in another have taken over our joy for you. God, would you relieve from us our pride and allow us to return safely to your grace. God, would you let us not be double-hearted or double-minded, but make us do what feels like the hard things, but what is total abandon and following after you as Lord. Make us obedient children, God. We love you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.